Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's open up our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah 36, I'll give you just a moment or two to find the book of Jeremiah in your Old Testament. Be reading a couple of verses there in chapter 36 that will help to set up everything that we want to talk about during this portion of our worship. And as you're turning to Jeremiah 36, I'll just say how great it is to see everybody on this uh, very beautiful uh, and yet final Lord's Day morning of 2018. You know, this is the time of year when we can't help but reflect back. and The Lord has certainly blessed us in the last 363 days this year in a number of different ways. Uh, being able to just serve Him and to be a part of His kingdom during this, this last year has been a blessing. And I hope that you are, as I am, just excited about the good things that the Lord has in store for us in 2019. And hopefully you have already made the decision that a big part of that equation in 2019 is going to be Bible reading. If you have not already, I am going to encourage you to get one of these spiffy little trifold brochures that you will find located in the back. You'll find them there in the rack next to the water fountain, or you'll find them in the rack next to the double doors. Lots of those printed up and available, because this is the Bible reading schedule for 2019, and that schedule begins this week. This year's reading plan is quite a bit different from the past five years of reading plans in that the readings have been selected and they have been arranged topically. We will still be reading one chapter a day, five days a week. That system seems to be working pretty good. But every two weeks, that theme, that topic is going to change. It's going to be different every two weeks. And I've got to tell you, I'm pretty excited about this year's format. This was actually suggested to me by someone, and then I was then given the duty of kind of doing the legwork and putting it all together, but I am excited about this. Now, I do want to say, nobody is obligated to follow this Bible reading schedule. You don't have to follow this plan in order to be an upstanding member here at the Lakeside Church of Christ. That's not a requirement on anybody. You may have your own system that you use to read and study the Bible throughout the year. In fact, you maybe are interested in one of the previous reading plans that we've done. Maybe this doesn't sound like something you'd be interested in. Maybe you're interested in just reading the New Testament or just reading the Old Testament or just reading the wisdom literature or reading the entire Bible or just reading the big picture of the Bible. Got all of these available from previous years. You let me know what it is that you might want and I'll make those available to you. But I will say this. There is great encouragement, and I believe there is great motivation to be found whenever you know that others around you are reading the same things in the Bible that you are reading week after week, day after day. And of course, throughout the year, we'll do a number of things that will help us in staying with that reading. I will, from time to time, preach sermons based on that particular week's reading. The back page of the bulletin, as it always is, will be devoted to things that pertain to that week's reading. If you use the Lakeside app on your cell phone or on your tablet, if you go to the Bible reading schedule, the little tab there for the Bible reading schedule, you're not going to find any of these other reading plans. You're going to find this year's plan, the 2019 plan. And so for those reasons and many more, I am going to encourage you to pick up one of those schedules, the great themes of the Bible reading plan, and let's all, as best we can, let's all be involved together in the reading of God's Word. And speaking of the reading of God's Word, look in Jeremiah chapter 36. In Jeremiah 36, this is the story of King Jehoiakim, who had received a message from God to him, and in fact to all of the inhabitants of Judah over which he was reigning as king. 
And unlike some of the other words that the prophets came and they gave their various oracles and those things were simply spoken orally, this particular prophecy, it was written down on a scroll and it was to be read. And so we are told in Jeremiah 36, look in verse 21, Then King Jehoiakim sent Jehudi to get the scroll. And he took it from the chamber of Elishama the secretary. And Jehudi read it to the king and to all the officials who stood beside the king. Now it was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house. There was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. And as Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. This is one of those places in the Bible that makes you go, did he just do that? Are my eyes deceiving me? Did that happen? That Jehoiakim cut and then burnt the scroll? And on that scroll contained the very words of God? Are you kidding me? Did that really happen? Yes, that did really happen. In fact, verse 24 goes on to say that burning the scroll really didn't even bother Jehoiakim, didn't affect his conscience in the least. In verse 25, when some of his officials, some of the guys standing around him said, Whoa, whoa, Kent, you shouldn't do that. You need to stop doing that. He just dug his heels in even more. Kept on cutting and kept on burning until the scroll, the words of God, were burnt in their entirety. You know, we read that and it is almost unfathomable for us to imagine someone having such thoughtless disregard for the Word of God that they would actually resort to burning the Bible. And yet that is exactly what is happening here in Jeremiah 36. And yet as blood-curdling as that event in that story sounds to us, I wonder, I wonder how many times we do the very same thing. Now, somebody's maybe thinking right now, oh, Josh, hold on now. I would never burn the Bible. I have never burned the Bible. That's something that's never, ever even crossed my mind. Don't go around pointing the finger and accusing me of burning the Bible. Well, let me just say, I don't believe that anyone here has ever or even thought about burning the Bible literally. But what I want to know is, is it possible that we have been guilty of the same kind of attitudes that Jehoiakim exemplified, where our thoughtlessness and our disregard for the Word of God caused us to burn it figuratively, metaphorically. Maybe let me just ask it this way. Is an unread Bible that just sits on your shelf, an unread Bible that just sits on your coffee table, an unread Bible that maybe sits in the back seat of your car collecting dust or even dirt, is that really any different? A Bible that just sits there day after day after day after day not being read, is that any different than a Bible that has been burnt into a heap of ashes? I'm going to suggest to you this morning that functionally it is no different. Just because you own a Bible... Just because maybe your Bible has your name engraved on the front of it. Just because you carry that Bible around on Sundays and Wednesdays. And just because you even sing and praise God for the wonderfulness of His Word. We just did that a moment ago, didn't we? I love your Word. 
and I lift my voice. Please don't think that just because you do some of those things, that that somehow makes you considerably better than King Jehoiakim. It does not. The truth of the matter is, just as in the days of Jeremiah, God today has a message for us. And that message has been written down. And that message has been delivered. And God, yes, He expects that message to be read. And if you and I, if we are truly the people of God as we claim to be, then we will be readers of that message regularly. That is one of the marks of our Christianity. That we are people of and devoted to the book. That we are having regular engagement with the living Word of God. Which is why this morning, I want to talk for just a few minutes. Can you guess? I want to talk about Bible reading. Those of you that have been here at Lakeside for a little while now, then you know, come the end of December or the beginning of January, Josh is going to get up and he's going to talk about, he's going to preach about Bible reading. And you know what? I am unapologetic about that. I am persuaded that there are very few things that you could do on a daily basis that will help you more in your walk with the Lord than to simply read the Bible. And I have made it my personal mission over the course of the last five plus years to just stress and pound away at the importance of Bible reading as much as I possibly can whenever I can. And this morning I want to do that by talking to you about some of the kinds of things that kill Bible reading. I want to share with you this morning three attitudes that cause Bible reading to just go right up in flames. Just like that scroll when it was put into that fire pot would have just went right up in flames. I want to talk to you about the kinds of attitudes that cause our Bible reading efforts to just go up in flames. Three things that prevent us, that hinder us from being devoted and consistent readers of the Word of God. Are you ready for that? Let's get to work on uprooting some of those hindrances in our life. Number one, one of the very biggest hindrances to Bible reading is the attitude that says, do I have to? Do I have to do that? You know, as I look out over this audience this morning, I think I know just about everybody here, and I know some little something about everybody here. And so I am pretty sure that I am talking to an entire group of people who don't want to go to hell and who do want to go to heaven. I'm not going to take an official poll on that right now, but I've had to guess, I would say 100% of the people in this room, you don't want to go to hell and you do want to go to heaven. That's why you are here today. However, as soon as you start talking about what it takes to avoid hell and what it takes to get to heaven... Pretty soon, somebody's going to start in with all of this, do I have to? Do I have to do this? Must I do that? How much exactly is required of me in these things? There is a mindset going on there, isn't there? There's a mindset there that is saying, hey, what's the minimum I can do? What is the bare minimum that I can do and still get in? What is the least that I can get by with as a Christian and well, still be pleasing unto God? Preacher gets up. He starts talking about daily Bible reading. And inside somebody's head, what they're thinking is they're thinking, "Uh, do I have to do that? Is that like a requirement to be a Christian? Can I just put that line of thinking and that idea to the sword? 
Can I put the sword of the Spirit to that? Look in 2 Timothy, please. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, here is a passage that I think just absolutely chops into bits this minimalist mindset. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is verse 15. In 2 Timothy 2 and in verse 15, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There are two words, two phrases in that passage that I think speak to effort and energy and just really getting after it. And the first of those is right there at the beginning. Do your best. Your translation might say, be diligent. That is a word, that is a phrase that denotes a zeal and an eagerness to try hard. And we do that, why? Why do do we expend that kind of energy and effort? We do that secondly because of the second word. And that is that we want to be an approved worker. A worker who is approved by God. Think about it. God, He's the judge here. He is the standard. You think about one day having to stand before Almighty God. Do you think that that's going to call for you to say, Well, Lord, look, I, I put in some bare minimum effort, Lord. God, I did just the very least I could. Can I still go into heaven? Do you think it's going to work that way? No, when you think about a worker, that calls to mind putting some muscle into it. Putting some sweat into that. I'm going to do the best that I can. I'm going to do the very most that I can because I want to please my master. He's either going to approve of me or he's going to disapprove of me. When he looks at my labors, what is he going to see? You see, this business of how little can I do and still get by... That just isn't going to fly, is it? That just doesn't work with 2 Timothy chapter 2. In fact, let me break this particular idea. Let me break that out into two directions. First and foremost, can I ask you, do minimums work whenever we're dealing with something that is of great significance and importance? Those of you that have flown on an airplane or who will be flying on an airplane maybe in the coming year, how many of you are interested in just minimal safety? When you get aboard that airplane. You think about it, airlines today, they exact and they exert just a tremendous amount of energy and time and effort and money into making flying safe. There's all kinds of stuff that goes into that. Who here would be okay with an airline who says, you know, it just takes an awful lot of effort in order to certify those mechanics who are able to work on the planes and check them out and fix those problems? And you know, it requires an awful lot of time in order to get these pilots to get their license and go through the FAA and do all that kind of stuff. And you know what? It just costs an awful lot of money to do these repairs to the planes and keep them up to date and going through all that, you know, safety protocol kind of stuff. So you know what? We're just kind of squeaking by on all that stuff. We're just kind of doing the bare minimum we can. Let me ask you, are you flying on that airline? You're going to be looking to get some tickets on that plane? Tiffany and I, we've been kind of preliminarily talking about going somewhere and doing something special for our 10-year anniversary later in the year. You know what? I I think we'll just fly on one of those low safety planes. That's what we'll do. No! I'm not flying on a plane that has bare minimum safety standards. When human life is at stake, and that's what we're talking about here, we want those people at the plane industry to put forth maximum effort. I want to know that they have done everything that they possibly can do to ensure my safety. 
Now, if we feel that way about flying and about our physical well-being, why would we not feel the same about our soul, about our spiritual well-being? Standing up in front of the Lord? Should I not be greatly concerned about the amount of effort that I put for that? Remember, I'm either going to be approved of God or disapproved of God. And when I stand before the Lord in that moment, I want to know and I want to be confident that I did everything that I possibly could to be found as a faithful servant to Him. I want to know that I have done all that I could, maximum effort for the Lord. In fact, somebody's maybe thinking, oh, come on, Josh. Talking here about doing lots of Bible reading. And somehow then you're going to connect that to the salvation of my soul? Well, I didn't say that. Paul says that. If you're still in 2 Timothy, just flip the page. Look in chapter 3. In chapter 3, look in verse 15. In chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, he says, From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice that the Apostle says there is a direct correlation between the Scriptures and salvation. And so if we're talking about something as important as salvation, then my attitude toward the Scriptures is not going to involve, well, let me see if I can find a bunch of shortcuts here. Let me see if I can just do the minimum here. What's the least I can get by with? No! I'm going to be striving for maximums. How much can I do? The other thing that I'd say about that, we talk about minimums, is I'd ask, do minimums work in relationships? Does that work in our human relationships with others? You know, if you're in a really good relationship, maybe that's a husband or a wife, maybe it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, maybe it's just a friendship, is that how you approach your relationships? What's the bare minimum that I could do for this other person? Those of you that are married, if it's your anniversary, husbands, you go to your wives and say, Honey, you know, flowers are just, they're just so expensive. So I, I, I didn't go buy you any flowers for our anniversary. No, instead, I went by the cemetery and I just plucked some flowers off the top of the gravestone. So, so happy anniversary. Is that how we do that? And you know, I'm getting you a gift. Gifts are so expensive. I mean, well, what can I really even get for you anyway? So, you know, the car needed an oil change. I went and got the oil changed in the car. Happy anniversary. Fellas, don't do that. It's a busy week for me this week. I do not have time to come and visit you at the hospital. Don't do that. In a relationship, we do the most that we can, not the least that we can, the most that we can to please and to make that other person happy. Isn't that right? Can I ask you this? How have we forgotten that we are in a relationship with God? Look at Jeremiah chapter 9, please. In Jeremiah chapter 9, here's a passage that the older I get, the more and more significant this passage has become to me. In Jeremiah chapter 9, the Lord stresses through His prophet the importance of being in a relationship with Him. That that's what it's all about. In Jeremiah 9, I'm reading in verse 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, 
practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That passage says that life is all about knowing God. It's about being in relationship with God. And when we talk about Bible reading, that's what we're trying to do. We are trying to come to know the Lord. Do we imagine then that this minimal, just kind of sliding by, least that I can do mentality, do we imagine that that is somehow fooling the Lord? That somehow God is not able to see the reality of things? That God's just kind of fooled and He's tricked into thinking that we care about Him and that we really value our relationship to Him when we can't even be bothered to crank this book open except on Sundays and Wednesdays, if that? We really think that's fooling God? He's not. Honestly now, what did Jesus say was the first and the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. What about that sounds like, do I have to? I have to do that? What about that sounds like, let's do the least we can possibly get by with? I want to suggest to you this morning that what we need is we need an entirely new approach to reading the Bible. Instead of this, how little can I do stuff, how about we start with this? How about we start with, you know what, my walk with God is the single most important thing to me in this life. I want everything and I want to do everything that I can to please and be approved by God. I want to be a worker who is pleasing in His sight. I want to go to heaven more than anything else. And so everything then in my life is going to be built around that singular focus. I'm going to do the most that I can to obtain that goal. That comes first. I'm suggesting to you today that that shift in attitude, that will make regular Bible reading, that will just make it a no-brainer in your life. When you have the kind of hunger and thirst for righteousness that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, then reading the Bible is not a do I have to thing. Reading the Bible becomes a I want to thing. Don't get caught up in that trap of minimums because that attitude just absolutely destroys Bible reading. Just like this second idea this morning. And that is the attitude that says, I have to study. Studying the Bible. Ugh, who wants to do that? Now, let me be very clear, and I'll probably say this two or three more times. Studying the Bible is important. And it is something that we do need and want to be involved in. In fact, if you're reading from a King James Bible this morning, that verse we read a moment ago in 2 Timothy 2.15, it actually says, study to show thyself approved unto God. We could read as well in Ezra chapter 7 and in verse 10 about Ezra that one of the keys to his faithfulness, one of the things that made him who he was, was that he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and then to do it and to teach it in Israel. And so I want to be enormously careful here not to come off like I'm saying a bad word about studying the Bible. I am in favor of studying the Bible. I study the Bible. You should study the Bible. I would like to guess that our Bible class teachers, they studied the Bible in preparation for their classes today. There is a time for Bible study. But I also want to be careful today not to turn daily Bible reading into this big, massive, 
heavy, deep study session. When we start thinking of daily Bible reading in terms of this big study thing, well, that can create some significant issues. First and foremost, it just sounds like a very academic sort of activity when you talk about studying. If I were to ask you, hey, have you read the Harry Potter books? It's very different from asking, hey, have you studied the Harry Potter books? The word study to us almost implies just this very intellectual pursuit where we're doing some real heavy and deep research. And it kind of almost sounds like when you hear the word study, I don't know what you think of, but I immediately think of school. School. And let's be honest, school is not always a great association in people's minds. Listen to me. Daily Bible reading, it is not intended to be some intellectual and scholarly pursuit. Look with me, if you will, in the book of Psalms, please. In Psalm 119, if you are just crank open to like the middle of your Bible, that would probably be Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, I want you to notice the joy with which the psalmist approaches the Scriptures. In Psalm 119, I'm looking down here near the end of the chapter. In Psalm 119, look at verse 167. Verse 167 of the 119th Psalm, My soul keeps your testimonies. Notice this. I love them exceedingly. I love them exceedingly. You know, I one time studied the Kentucky State Driver's Handbook in order to get my license. But after doing all that studying, I cannot say that I loved it exceedingly. In fact, quite the opposite. That deep and careful study of that particular book, it was not a delight to me. It was not something that I enjoy. But the psalmist says that when you read the Bible, when you read the Word of God, it is a joy. That it ought to be a great delight to us to encounter the Lord in the Scriptures. Now let me say again, I think this is the second time now. There is a time for digging deeply into the text. There is a time to just kind of really thrash that out and to cross-reference and to get a dictionary out and to look up the meaning to Greek words and to Hebrew words and to do all that kind of stuff. But this thinking that I have to do that kind of stuff every single day, that can turn Bible reading into a real drudgery. and It's not a joy. The other thing that I would say about that is that whenever we approach the Scriptures in this very academic and stoic sort of way, what can happen is is we can make Bible reading into just being all about gathering information. You know, that's why we study, isn't it? Because we want to master this, this set of facts. We want to accumulate a bunch of data. We want to be able to know and be very proficient in this particular subject, whatever it may be. And whenever we approach Bible reading in that sort of fashion, what's going to happen is that somebody's going to say, you know what, I already know this stuff. I've already got the facts. I've already got all the information. Look, I've read the Bible before. In fact, I've even read it a couple of times through before. And I've been coming to church all my life. And I've heard thousands of sermons. And I go to Bible class all the time. I've got all the information. I know all the Bible characters. I even know some of those minor Bible characters. I can tell you about Mephibosheth. I can tell you about Tishicus. 
And I can point to a map. My kids are laughing because we talked about Tishikis today. I can point to a Bible map. And I can show you. That's Ramoth Gilead. And hey, there's Beersheba. And I can even quote big old chunks of the Bible right from my own memory. I've got the information. So what's the incentive for me to just keep on reading this day after day after day? Yeah, I guess I could learn maybe some some even more minor characters and some even more minor places. But you know what? Basically... I've got the information stuff down pat. What's the problem with that approach? The problem with that approach is that we're not reading the Bible to get information. We are reading the Bible for a completely different reason. We're not reading the Bible so that we can impress our friends with all the Bible minutiae that we know. We're not reading the Bible so that we can collect a lot of information and we can just win in Bible trivia every time. That's not why we read the Bible. We read the Bible regularly and consistently because we want to spend time with our Lord. Because we want to know God. We want to draw closer to Him. Not because we want to just master a set of religious facts. Look in James, please, in James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, James reminds us here that the goal is not information. The goal of reading the Bible is transformation. In James chapter 1, this is verse 22, James says, But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away, and at once he forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he, the doer, will be blessed in His doing. The goal of reading the Bible is to spend time with the Lord so that we can then be better equipped to do the will of the Lord. That, that ought to be a delight. That ought to be a joy. In fact, can you go back to that 119th Psalm? In Psalm 119 again, I'm just impressed with the joyful attitude, the joyful language that the psalmist just employs over and over again. Look in verse 10. In Psalm 119, there in verse 10, he says, With my whole heart, I seek after you. You see, the whole context of Psalm 119 is about reading the Bible. With my whole heart, I'm seeking after you. That's what we're talking about. That God, I'm in this book because I'm chasing after you. I'm not trying to become some big Bible know-it-all. I'm trying to know the Lord. Drop down to verse 14. In verse 14, In the way of your testimonies, I delight. As much as in all riches. Lord, I just love your, I love it more than even money. There's a thrill to that. Drop down to verse 162. In verse 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. There ought to be that kind of excitement and joy and delight in daily Bible reading. Why? Because we are meeting, we are communing with the Lord. Don't approach Bible reading like it's this big academic pursuit. That's going to cause you to turn something that God intends to be a joy, it's going to cause you to turn it into just a big religious chore that you dread doing every day. That attitude, that attitude only leads to disaster. And that is true of this third and final approach this morning. Because your Bible reading is sure to go up in flames whenever you are always expecting... Some kind of feeling to come from that. 
You know, where are the feelings here? Why am I not feeling anything from what I'm reading? You know, whenever people today talk about having some devotional time with God, if you hear people talk about that or you read about that, people just make that sound like that is just the most amazing thing in just the whole wide world. People sometimes will write about their quiet time with God. They'll write about it in a, in a blog or they'll post about it on social media. And it just always comes across sounding like it's just the most awesome experience ever. It sounds, for example, like this lady's Facebook post, which said, I get up early when the house is still dark, and I make me a cup of coffee. And in the quiet stillness of the morning, I pray, and I read, and I contemplate the Bible, and it feels so amazing to be alone with God and His Word. Or how about this woman's Instagram post? She said, our back deck, it looks over the woods. And the sun rises. And I sit reading my Bible, and it's the closest thing to being in the direct presence of God. Hashtag so incredible. Hashtag awesome God. Is your Bible reading every day? Is it like that? My Bible reading is not like that. My Bible reading is sometimes in the middle of the day. It's not in the middle of a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset. It's in the middle of the day because I've been bombarded by a hundred different things on every side. And so I dig my Bible reading schedule out and I scrounge to find, alright, this is the week that we're in. And I try to get that read for a few moments without any kind of interruptions. And sometimes when I'm done reading those verses, you know what? What it sounds like after reading it is it just sounds like a bunch of stuff about a bunch of stuff that happened a long time ago, and I'm not even sure why I'm reading that, and I'm really not even entirely sure what that's supposed to be saying to me, but there's not a bunch of sizzle after I get done reading. There's not an angelic host singing above me like these people almost seem to indicate. There's not some light shining from above. There aren't any catchy hashtags. I read it. Well, I read it. And that's about all I was able to do. What I'm saying to you this morning is that if you go into Bible reading and you expect it to be just this glorious, amazing experience with all these extraordinary feelings just welling and bubbling up and you read your Bible and it doesn't turn out to be this amazing experience and there aren't all these extraordinary feelings welling and bubbling up, after a while, what somebody's liable to say is they're liable to say, well, you know what? This obviously isn't working. What am I even doing this for? What do I read this? I'm not feeling anything. I not get anything out of this. And it's not the big mountaintop experience that these people make it sound like. It's not the big pep rally atmosphere that I was hoping for it to be. This is just a bus. Wait just a second. Bible reading is not designed to serve as your personal spiritual pep rally all the time. I realize that our culture has kind of made it out to be that way. Our culture has actually made serving God out to be like, well, that's just something that's all about us. And it's about gaining a bunch of cool feelings for us. And we can then share that on social media or with our friends, and everybody can just be so impressed and jealous of us. That isn't what Bible reading is about. Let me show you how Bible reading works. Look in Psalm 1. In Psalm chapter 1, I actually read this passage uh, last Sunday night. I need to read it again. In Psalm chapter 1, look in verse number 1, the beginning of the psalm. Psalm 1 verse 1. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. Verse 2 now. 
But his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. Who's that guy? That's Mr. Regular Bible Reader. That's who that guy is. Notice what that guy, the guy who regularly reads and meditates upon the Scriptures, notice how that guy is described in the very next verse. Verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. That man or that woman who regularly spends time in the Word of God, that person is compared to a growing tree. When you plant a tree, get yourself a little little sapling, you put that in the ground, when you put that into your yard or wherever it is that you're planting that little tree, does that thing just turn into a big towering oak overnight? You know, that when it gets that first drop of rain or that first ray of sunshine, just whoosh, just grows just instantaneously, just this amazing thing? No. Slowly, steadily, over time, almost unnoticed, that sapling becomes that strong, deep-rooted tree. And David says that the man who reads the Word of God and meditates upon it, that individual slowly, steadily, and over time, they become deeply rooted in the Lord. There's no whiz-bang magic here. There's not the light shining from heaven and the angelic host singing around you. There's no instantaneous, wow, that was the greatest thing I've ever read in my life. You can't post on social media about it. It's not going to impress anybody. But there is growth happening there. Which means that what we really need to be looking for when we're reading our Bible is we need to be looking for our faith. We need to be relying on our faith, not on feelings. We need the settled conviction that if I will plant, and if I will then water, and if I will then nourish the seed of God's Word in my heart, and if I'll do that regularly, if I'll do that consistently, if I'll do that repeatedly, then I have the faith that over time, that's going to germinate, that's going to sprout, and that's going to end up bearing fruit for the Lord. And that's true even when we read something in our Bible that maybe we don't even fully understand. Maybe the Bible reading for that day just really caused me to scratch my head. You know, I'm not even really sure what that means. Not even really sure what I'm supposed to get out of that. We need the kind of faith and conviction that says, you know what, I didn't get all that, but I'm glad that I read it anyway. Why? Because it's God's Word. And when the Word of God is inside of me, I am convicted that something is going to happen. And so yes, that growth, it might be slow. There may not be some amazing, unforgivable, you know, once in a lifetime feelings that come along with that. You read Ephesians this week. I think that's where the Bible reading begins this week. You read Ephesians, the first couple of chapters in Ephesians. It's probably not going to be this big glorious moment. But I am confident that I will mature and I will strengthen and I will deepen my walk with God by being consistent and constant in the reading of His Word. That is the conviction that we need. That whether the Bible provides us with the pep rally that we're looking for or it doesn't, And in fact, sometimes the Bible does give us the pep rally that we're looking for, the pick-me-up that we need. But even if it doesn't, that doesn't matter. Because I believe that blessings are sure to follow for the one who delights in the law of the Lord, who makes it his meditation day and night. Now, I always get really excited talking about Bible reading. 
And I realize that not everybody else that I'm talking to gets naturally excited about the subject of Bible reading whenever it comes up. I realize that it is something that it takes work. And it takes some patience. And it takes a lot of faith. And many times what it really takes is it takes just a big change and a big shift in our attitude. But we must be determined to develop the habit of regular Bible reading. Why? Because we desire, we desire the Word of God in our lives. King Jehoiakim did not have that desire. And as best we can tell from the scriptural information we have about him, I don't believe that he ever got that desire for the Word of God. And because of that, he stands before the Lord. He will suffer eternally. And while this morning I do not know everybody here, I don't know everybody's personal habits, I don't know where you are in your relationship to God's Word, I do know this. I know why new Christians get the new just knocked right off of them by the devil and they end up straying away from the Lord. I can tell you why that happens. It's because they don't read the Bible. And I know why people who have been Christians for a very, very long time, maybe for decades, why it is that they go into apostasy and they go into error and they do stuff that, man, we look at them and we think, man, they should have known better than that. I know why that happens. It's because those people don't read their Bible. And I know as well why Christians end up getting themselves entrenched in horrible and scandalous sins. The kind that calls us to shake our heads and to say, man, how could they be involved in that kind of thing? I'll tell you why. It's because they don't read their Bible. Bible living, it's all predicated first upon Bible reading. It's where it starts. As we're standing right now on the precipice of a new year, we do have a wonderful opportunity to commit ourselves, or maybe to recommit ourselves, to extinguishing the spirit of Jehoiakim, and maybe once and for all, being truly defined as being people of the book. Now as we extend the invitation of Jesus the Christ, if you were to open up the book, if you were to just kind of go searching, go doing some exploring, to find out what's a person need to do to, to be in a right relationship with God, what does a person need to do in order to be saved, What you would find is you would find that those people who lived in the New Testament times, they were told that first of all, they needed to hear the Word of God. Romans 10 verse 17. And upon hearing that Word, they then needed to believe. And they needed to confess their faith in Jesus Christ as God's Son. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And upon that faith, there are some actions that need to take place. And that is that there needs to be repentance, a change in relationship to sin, and then there needs to be some baptism. Being buried with Jesus Christ in water, as Acts 2 and verse 38 instructs. That'll make you a Christian. And those New Testament Christians, they didn't stop there. They were then to grow. They were to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord, 2 Peter 3 and verse 18. And as you can probably guess, this book played a really huge role in that growth process. And so this morning, is there someone here who needs to take those initial steps in order to become a child of God? If so, all things are ready and we're glad and be eager and excited to help you in becoming a Christian today. If you are a child of God, but you've not been growing, you've not been the kind of disciple that you ought to be, it may just be that the kind of the problem with a lot of the issues in your life is because you've just gotten away from the Word.
Repent of that, brother or sister. If you want to call upon us as your spiritual family to encourage you and pray for you and help you in some way, we stand ready to do that as well. Whatever your need may be, why don't you take advantage of this moment by coming to the front. Do it right now while we stand and while we sing.